AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So Matt, you have a story on some low-end Chinese smartphones that may be uh, costing consumers more than they think. That's right. So uh, this is some research by a company called SecureD. Um, they're taking a look at low-end mobile devices, specifically because they were seeing a lot of fraud activity from a particular manufacturer, Transion. Uh, this manufacturer makes uh, handsets for the African market. Uh, and one particular model over there is they were seeing a huge number of uh, subscription fraud attempts from these handsets. Uh, that's when, you you know, the, uh, the malware installed on the machine is trying to sign you up for a service you didn't want to pay for in the first place uh, just to make money off of you. They were seeing a large number, and when I say large, I mean 12.9 million fraudulent transaction attempts coming from um, Egypt, South Africa, Cameroon, Ghana, other, other such nations in Africa. So they took a look at it. Uh, turns out that this particular model handset had, a, um, had an issue where at some point in the supply chain, this uh, Triada malware was being installed. So Triada is kind of the downloader slash loader portion of the malware. Uh, XHelper is the actual backdoor malware and the stuff that does everything that's kind of nasty. So these two, these two bits of malware go hand in hand. Um, and this is a malware that was doing click fraud and transaction fraud. So basically, if this was on your phone, you wake up one morning and find out that your bill was 10 times higher than you expected and you were signed up for all sorts of things you didn't want to sign up for. Um, so they found around 53,000 unique devices of this model with XHelper installations. So I guess what, what uh, we would want to tell people about this is, I mean, if you have this particular model phone, um, that's, that's outlined in the article, I would say get rid of it. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's a very easy malware to get rid of uh, in terms of uninstalling it. Um, apparently, if you remove it, even if it doesn't have an internet connection within five minutes or so, it manages to reinstall itself, very pernicious. Um, I guess what might be a saving grace is that these are not very expensive phones. Like I said, these are low-end phones. Um, around 30 US dollars. I mean, if, if you're somebody whose who's only option is one of these phones, um, I'm sorry, you're kind of out of luck. I, I wouldn't use them for anything at this point. But um, ultimately, I think if you want to avoid this sort of thing, the best thing you can do is keep an eye on your bill and keep an eye on uh, what software is installed on your phone. If you start seeing unexplained charges or data overages and you're clearly not using your phone as heavily as your bill would suggest, it's time to talk to your, uh, to your service provider, see what's going on. Maybe there's an explanation, and if they get enough of those cases, uh, they might be able to do something and, and determine whether or not there's actually some sort of supply chain issue with malware. Very cool. Uh, it, it doesn't surprise me, right? Like, I, I guess you, you get what you pay for. And as you mentioned, like a $30 phone from, from a Chinese manufacturer, you need to be careful, right? And I believe it's not the first time it has happened, right? I remember a bunch of times where the SD cards that they were using to, to build those phones were infected and, you know, multiple vendors had, had the same issue. So as you mentioned, like, I, I'll be careful with uh, how you use these phones and, and you know, try to, to get phones from, like, well-established vendors that, you know, are going to have in place some security measures in terms of validating, you know, as you mentioned, supply chains, 
uh, validating that the funds are secure and that can you know spend the the, the right amount of money on on actually making sure that those funds are secure uh, to start with. Mm -hmm. I agree. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe a general issue with with some of these low end smartphones, maybe that are more adware uh, driven, is you may get desensitized, right, to seeing these pop ups, right, um, until it's maybe even too late, and then you get signed up. I think it mentioned in the article some of these services, these premium services, and then you know, next thing you know, your you know your thirty dollars smartphone is costing you more than like 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 Jaime said, more reputable phones. So it's it's. Um, you, like Jaime said, you get what you pay for, but you definitely have to keep an eye out, get get a, a reputable vendor phone, and um, you know you can avoid these situations. You know, you made a very good point there uh, about uh, adware. Uh, there are low-end phones that are subsidized through adware. I remember having one of those phones myself uh, for a brief amount of time, not realizing that it was not just sending my information to uh, one of the official sponsors. Uh, it actually turned out that they were sending that data back to China as well, um, which was a problem, obviously. Um, but I think in this case, there's an important distinction uh, that the manufacturer in this case claims that this is a supply chain attack and not uh, something that was intentionally put there by that manufacturer. Now, this is all I know of it at this point. I can't say one way or the other if this is, you know, if this is actually the case, but um, I think people could, I think that when people enter into a bargain um, like that where they understand what kind of data is being shared and it's, it's defraying the cost of the phone, I think that's a, something that some people might actually go for. Uh, when it's a supply chain attack, uh, that's, that's, I feel like nobody knows that it's happening and it's a terrible thing uh, and it's not some sort of informed decision. So here, uh, it seems like um, it's it's kind of hard to say. And I, I know uh, Jaime, you mentioned buying from reputable vendors in the first place, and I think that's probably the best way to go. Um, if you've heard of a company, if you, they have a track record of of caring about malware, or caring about their their customer security, um, that's better than than buying from a company you haven't heard of before and you don't know how they've dealt with these sorts of things in the past. Hey, Michael, I heard you have an interesting story about a new crypto mining worm that steals data from credentials from AWS. Yeah, Jaime, this one uh, was published by Kato Security. Uh, like you mentioned, it's a crypto mining worm. We, we've seen them. Uh, this one's a, a little interesting, a little different in that it, it specifically has a, a targets uh, AWS credentials. So it's, it's targeting a cloud provider. Um, so it, it basically looks for these uh, misconfigured Docker APIs, so exposed on the internet. We've talked about that uh, countless times. Uh, but what it, this one does actually uh, enumerates through the, the users through root and looks for uh, these AWS credential files. So in AWS, in IAM, whenever you create a, an access key, so basically these long-lived uh, credentials, uh, they get stored in your home directory, typically by default under a, a hidden directory called AWS and then a file called credentials. And in there you have the access key and you have this, this secret token. Uh, so this worm, you know, looks for those specific files and when it finds them, it exfiltrates them back to their server uh, where obviously they're, they're uh, collecting them uh, for some purpose. Um, Cato did mention that they, uh, they did create some, some canary tokens and sent them to the server and they have not seen them used yet. So uh, they're not sure if that means that 
they are kind of manually mining through these uh, credentials, or if they have some automation that just you know isn't uh, isn't working yet. Um, but the the crypto miner itself again is kind of scanning through uh, the internet using MassScan, looking for these Docker API ports. Uh, whenever it finds one that's open, it downloads its own image and installs it and starts running. Um, it's based on a, a previous uh, worm called Kinsing. Uh, so it's obviously reused code. And one of the things that uh, Cato talks about is uh, there's someone may end up using, reusing this code. So sort of this evolution in this miner where now it's targeting specific uh, cloud providers. So we may see an uptick um, in this usage here. Um, they did note that, uh, you know, obviously the miner uh, is based on XM rig. Um, and from what they've seen in the wallets, it, it only had, had, you know, basically $300. So not, not a major operation uh, monetarily, but again, their kind of focus is on potentially what this, um, what this ultimately uh, may, may turn into. Uh, and they, they, they uh, the attackers themselves is a, called Team TNT, and they uh, have a link to their website where they talk a little bit about uh, different malware sandboxes. Um, so again, just a kind of an interesting twist on, on some of this um, container Kubernetes based uh, coin mining we've seen. And, you know, the question is, do we see this kind of uh, in the future uh, target other cloud providers, you know, Azure, Google, kind of the, the major ones, um, you know, credentials, certainly for cloud providers uh, could be admin credentials. They could allow you to create users. You can obviously create a lot of res different resources. So it uh, might be interesting just to keep an eye on this and see, see where it goes. Very cool story, and and you know I like this this story in particular because uh, you know the the author is Chris Doman that used to be in my team in Alien Labs for a long time. So he you know he started this new company Kado Kado Security a few months ago. So yeah, it was great to see that that research from Chris. Very cool. It does bug me to see um, Team TNT Red Team Pen Testing as the name of the uh, the website, uh, just because. Uh, if they were a real red team or a pen testing team, they'd know that this is way out of bounds um, for anybody who's actually legitimate. Like it, it's, it's, it just gives uh, it gives red teamers a bad name uh, when someone like this goes ahead and, and actually tries to profit off of compromising other people's boxes without permission. Because right. um, you always get permission when you're on the red team. Uh, at least you get permission from somebody who's authorized to give permission. You may not um, get permission from everybody up and down the chain during a red team test, but like somebody knows this is legit. This has been signed off on, and and there's no way that mining Monero on compromised right. AWS uh, credentials is, is legitimate. Yeah, yeah, great point. Um, so a couple things, you know, to to keep in mind to protect yourself from this. You know, we've talked about in the past. Um, you know, internet exposed resources, certainly cloud-based ones, are are never good. So make sure that you're restricting. Um, you know, your sources, your access um, where needed. And, and one thing I wanted to mention too, uh, specifically for, for cloud is most cloud providers, actually all of them, certainly the major ones, uh, provide a capability to have these short-lived credentials, right? You can assign roles and privileges to VMs or resources. Um, so instead of using these hard-coded credentials, uh, which, who, you know, best practices to rotate them, right? Um, but, but you may not. Uh, is instead of using these hard-coded credentials, certainly having them on your, your production uh, workloads uh, is to, to leverage these, these short-lived credentials. So if something were to compromise, it has a shorter window, that's something to be used. And then when you use that, obviously use least privilege, right? If you only need to do a few things, don't give it the ability to create users and, and buckets and all kinds of things. So, um, you know, review your access, 
and, you know, again, review where and if, and if, if you even need to have any of these long lived credentials. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, in, in the first place, you shouldn't use, you know, credentials if you are inside AWS, right? As you said, you, you should leverage roles and things like that that don't require to hardcore those values. And good point. I mean, one of the things we, we do is those uh, temporary security credentials with a, you know, TTL of a few hours. And every time you need to get new credentials, you know, if, if you are a human, actually, if, if you're a service, you are not going to need that, right? But if you're a human, you need to uh, do second factor in order to get those, uh, you know, uh, temporary security credentials. Because, you know, even if you do everything right, I know, you know, pro probably every single company has had a, an issue with this, right? Like they have published credentials in GitHub or, or things like that that are, are pretty hard to, to control. You know, everything that you can do in advance, as you mentioned, uh, you know, it, it's going to save you many, many times. So, Jaime, I heard you have some uh, original research about ransomware operators who not only uh, encrypt data, but also will threaten to release it if a, a ransom isn't paid. So what can you tell us? That's right. So my team and I have been looking at, you know, different threat actors that leverage ransomware. And, you know, this new trend that started late last year where, uh, as you described, ransomware operators on top of encrypting, encrypting your data and asking for a ransom, you know, if you don't pay the ransom, they are also going to publish your files on, on the dark web. So the cool thing about this is we were able to identify more than 10 uh, dark web uh, onion sites where you know, the, the operators are just listing every victim, you know, the industry. So you can get a lot of data about the type of companies that they are compromising, right? So, you know, the type of data that we have seen there that they are leaking are things like financial data, customer information. We have even seen passports and background checks, uh, social security numbers. So it's a lot of uh, information, both from companies in the US, but also in, in Europe. And the important thing about Europe is, you know, this adds uh, an extra amount of pressure on these companies to pay the ransom because if that data ends up in the dark web, they can get fines from GDPR, right? So, uh, as you know, in Europe, like they are, they are, you know, pretty good at, you know, finding companies lately in terms of, you know, if 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 you have a security breach and that type of data from your customers ends, ends up being, being publicly available, right? So we have also seen intellectual property, not just from those companies, but it's also important to look at, you know, we have seen information from 40 and 500 companies because those third parties were uh, their customers, right? So when you're a big enterprise, even if you have, uh, uh, you know, enough security to make sure that this is not happening to you, you need to look at who your vendors are, who your third parties are, because your data can't end up, uh, you know, being publicly available because a, 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 a breach on, on one of those third party companies, right? Lately, you, you have probably seen very high profile companies, right? We have seen Xerox, LG, Canon uh, that were targeted by Maze. Uh, you have seen Garmin, actually, a pretty big company that was targeted recently by one of these uh, uh, you know, ransomware guns. Uh, and, you know, one of the interesting things about Garmin, it's actually, it looks like they pay the ransom. So it's one of the, you know, big, uh, big companies that actually decided to pay that ransom. So there is a possibility that one of the reasons why they pay the ransom was because of the situation where, 
you know, these uh, these threat actors were actually, uh, you know, not only not giving them the key, but they uh, they were going to publish the information. In terms of, uh, you know, the study that we have made, how are these uh, ransomware threat actors actually compromising those networks? We have seen, you know, 90% of the times it's like three uh, threat vectors, right? One is, is, is spear phishing. I mean, uh, we are tired of telling the same story, right? Like I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna repeat that. But the other two are actually pretty, pretty important, right? The main one is a remote desktop brute forcing and remote desktop, uh, you know, using credentials that they have stolen from from third parties, right? So if you reuse your credentials in 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 another site and those credentials are compromised, these companies, uh, these threat actors are gonna try to use those credentials. And if you have exposed remote desktop, uh, you know, servers, that's one of the main uh, threat vectors that, that they are using. And the second one uh, that is very important is lately there, have, there has been many, many uh, vulnerabilities in F5, Citrix, Fortinet, you know, Pulse Secure, all these VPNs and remote access tools. All these ransomware gangs have been exploiting those vulnerabilities really, really uh, uh, badly. So especially uh, Reveal and, you know, Double Pamer and others, Maze is, is one of the other groups that have been you know, hitting every single site on the internet that had these uh, devices exposed, and that's how they gain access to those networks. So, you know, three things you need to pay attention, you know, offline backups, you, you need to do that. You need to do this today, right? Even if you have a good, uh, you know, backup policy, if those backups are available, uh, uh, you know, somehow they are online backups, meaning that if if threat actors get get access to your environment and they are ac able to access those backups, the first thing they're gonna do it is, is remove those backups. So you know, try to to uh, you know at, at least for your main databases and services, try to make sure that you have those offline backups that can be uh, you know accessed. Obviously, two-factor authentication. Some of the you know threat vectors that I mentioned, especially you know remote, remote desktop and VPN exploitation. You know, two-factor authentication can actually uh, mitigate some of those things. Even if they get access to a VPN, if you have two-factor two authentication, some of that la lateral movement can be prevented uh, by that. And obviously, if you can, if you haven't started yet, you know, try to to move to that zero-trust architecture where you are obviously going to mitigate a lot of these things because even if threat actors gain access to, to your network, they're going to have a hard time moving laterally and accessing that, uh, you know, confidential data that can be exploited in, in this uh, scheme. Well, those are great, all great uh, recommendations. Um, I don't think I have anything else. Mike, you got anything? No, just, just it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, they're adding this additional leverage, right? So. They're maybe not getting payment just with the threat of, or just, just to get the encryption key, but but now they're, well, we're going to publish it, right? So just kind of taking it, upping the ante, right, to ensure that they're uh, they're getting their payment. So definitely interesting kind of, again, evolution in this. Yeah, and the one thing I, I forgot to mention, we also saw one of these threat actors experimenting with new schemes. Uh, so uh, one of them actually experimented with action in the files, so people could, you know, bid for those files in advance. Oh, wow. And yeah, so we see how they're, you know, they get very creative and, and they keep adding new features that add more pressure uh, for those companies to pay the ransom.
right, guys, let's take a look at this week's internet weather. These are the top 10 most probed ports for the past week. Uh, in number one, you see TCP port 23, that's Telnet. 80 ICMP follows, with, that's Ping. Uh, 445 TCP is SMB. Uh, 22 TCP is up by one slot, swapping with 1433. Those are SSH and Microsoft SQL Server, respectively. 3389 does, has not moved anywhere. That's uh, remote desktop protocol. 80 TCP is up four slots. We'll take another closer look at that in just a second. Uh, that's a regular old HTTP traffic. 443 is uh, SSL, POS, um, that hasn't moved. 8545 is the Ethereum GF um, daemon or other Ethereum-related uh, daemons. I know we've talked about that in the past. That's up one um, swapping spots with 81 TCP, which is an alternate web port. So let's take a look at the most sources probing. This is individual sources of traffic, not volume. Uh, you can see a lot of these haven't really changed. Uh, 445 is in first place, 23 TCP, 80. 1433 is up one, 8291 is down one. 8291 is related to microtech routers. Um, port 22 TCP follows that, 80 ICMP. We've talked about these. Uh, 8080 TCP is sometimes a proxy port, sometimes an alternate web port. Hard to tell be just the port number, but it's some sort of web-related traffic most likely. 00 ICMP is echo response or echo reply. That's a response to a ping. Uh, and the last one at the, uh, the bottom of the list, number 10, is for 53 UDP. That's DNS, and that is down by one spot. Taking a closer look, um, port 80 TCP, which is HTTP. Um, the last 30 days, they did have a major spike back on the 23rd. That was a single source in the U.S. targeting a very small IP range, but with significant scan traffic. Uh, so that is the, re the reason for that, that one uh, glitch. But you can see it's, it's pretty spiky overall. I mean, it seems like it's a, a pretty varied port. People will scan it for all sorts of reasons. Uh, I do not know for what reason this particular range was scanned, um, but someone was super interested in it. I wanted to bring up some ports that did not uh, make it to the top 10, but did trip our alarming for this past week. 5501 TCP is apparently registered to uh, Oracle DB Enterprise Management Console. I'm not positive that's exactly the software that's being scanned here. Uh, the sources are from Egypt, Mauritius, and Puerto Rico, uh, among others, but those are the primary sources. And you can see there's been a couple of spikes in the last 30 days for this port. Um, it is very interesting to me to see that the scanning sources are all in the same IP ranges. Sometimes that means someone has rented out a large swath of IP space just for scanning in some sort of virtual private service uh, server range. Sometimes it means you've got a whole bunch of IoT devices that have been compromised and are all being used. And sometimes you see a geographic locus of um, a certain model, a certain brand, or a certain vulnerable device. What's going on here, I'm not exactly sure, uh, but it is one to keep an eye on because the traffic has been spiky uh, the last couple of weeks. And one more I wanted to mention is it was very strange to see these two ports show up with such high spikes, um, 8933 and 9833. I'm not positive that's not a typo for one of the two of them. Like if someone sped up their scanning engine and, and mistyped 9833 or 8933, but you can see that there have been several scans for these ports. I don't know what they represent. I'd love to know. It's definitely interesting. And it didn't seem to have a particular geographic uh, location behind it. I mean, it just seems like it's a large amount of scanning. So what this is right now is a mystery. I'd love to hear from any of our viewers uh, if they have any ideas as to what these ports represent and might, what might be the target of this scanning. But it was significant enough to make it to uh, one of our alerts.
So Matt, these scanning uh, IPs, uh, are they, they typically looking at a, like a, a specific range or is it across the address space or both? Does it kind of depend on the... If we typically see a large number of, uh, of hosts scanning for a port, it's also typically widespread. Um, to me, that means that there's some sort of botnet that's trying to harvest new members and they're not going to waste, they're not going to ignore any particular IP ranges when they do that. Um, the case that we saw a few slides back where it was a single IP address scanning a very specific range, um, that's kind of unique. That's kind of a different thing than what I'm used to seeing, uh, but it doesn't mean it can't break the, uh, the records or, or, or get into our alerting systems because of the volume of traffic that it created. But typically, yes, um, when you see a botnet scan like this, they may, you know, ignore certain ranges because they have some feeling that they're going to alert somebody of their presence, like a, a research company or maybe a particular government they don't want to uh, anger. But in general, botnets are trying to get as wide a population into that scanning as they can so they can keep adding new members. No, looks like uh, one more day on the internet, right? <laughs> The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.